What I'd like to talk about is where we're going in this practice. In my experience, as I began to understand the potential of this practice and really understand what might happen from this practice, my intention to practice grew stronger, my motivation for practice grew stronger, my understanding of the technique of practice became clearer and I began to be able to really use the tools of this practice in a wise way. I think we need to know where we're going. I, I had an image last year, um, in, in the fall of last year I was in New England in uh, a place that I found out was a flyway for the geese flying south. And I looked, I was watching flocks of geese in the sky and here's a flock of geese flying and they have, seem to have a leader or one which is out in front and they're flying south. And at one point the whole flock turned and went north for a little bit and then turned and went back south again. It was just a moment of going in one direction and then some kind of miscue, turning the wrong way, but then turning around and going back again. And I thought to myself, those geese know where they're going. You know, if, if, they, if it doesn't feel right, they make a course adjustment. It's so important for us to know as we practice where we are going with this. The truth is that when I began my own practice, I didn't really have an idea. I came with a kind of, I wonder if I had an intention at all, other than the fact that it was the 1970s and going on retreats in general and Vipassana retreats were what was one of the in things to do. And my friend said, this is good to do, so I did it. But it's tremendously important to, to put this into the whole context of its potential. So what I hope I'm going to talk about really is where are we going and how will we get there and my plan is to put that in the context of the particular techniques for practice we're using here, something in the nature of helpful hints for practice. So let's remind ourselves, I'd like to remind you that mindfulness, mindfulness is that quality, that balanced recognition of the present moment, a balanced, clear seeing of the present moment without grasping and without aversion, a moment that recognizes what's happening, knows what the possibilities of response to the moment are, recognizes the wisest and most compassionate response, and has the energy to make it and is motivated to make that response. I'll say it another way. I think mindfulness is knowing what's happening outside in this moment, knowing what our inner response to this moment is, knowing what the possibilities are, then choosing wisely, and using the energy of the moment to affect that wise choice. Sometimes a wise choice is some sort of action in the world. Sometimes the wise choice 
when there are no other wise alternatives is surrender in the moment. Sometimes the wise choice, as we sit here perhaps in practice, and there's a moment of wakefulness and nothing that needs to be done, the wise choice is a commitment to stay awake in the next moment, to bring that moment of attentiveness to the next moment. Every moment of mindfulness conditions mindfulness in the next moment. So that moment in which we're awake, in which we know we're awake, and say, good, I'm awake, let's see what's next, is what carries the practice along. I think the most important thing for me, pivotal, in building my motivation and dedication to practice was to realize in some very basic fundamental way that as I make wise choices, that choice makes an effect in the world. And that in the largest sense, this is a practice that we do on behalf of each other, on behalf of our family, on behalf of our kin, our community, and ultimately on behalf of all beings. To what degree we wake up personally and respond with kindness and compassion, we affect the whole world. The Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. In the foreword to um, Mark Epstein's book, Thoughts Without a Thinker, the Dalai Lama begins that foreword with the sentence, the purpose of life is happiness. And I thought to myself, Oh, I'm surprised. I thought it was going to say the purpose of life is service. But I think they're the same. I think that when we are happy, we take care of each other. When we're content, we recognize the pain of other people's suffering, and we address it out of a recognition that that's the happiest way to be. It brings ease to our hearts as we are able to serve I had a funny experience a number of years ago. Uh, I was at some big party, I can't remember what, probably somebody's wedding or something where I'd, I'd come from a distance and I didn't know all the people there and people knew people who knew people. They weren't off and they weren't family. And um, a young man came up to me um, in his uh, first year of college somewhere and he said, I've come to meet you because my parents who are here told me that you're a Buddhist teacher and uh, I'm studying comparative religions in my first year in college now and I'm studying about Buddhism. What kind of a Buddhist teacher are you? So I said, well, uh, I, teach, um, I teach meditation. Uh, that I teach mindfulness meditation that comes from the Theravada tradition. Um, some of you may not know that that's the earliest of the Buddhist teachings. and Anyway, I said, I teach mindfulness meditation, comes from the Theravada tradition. And he said, oh, I know then, you're one of those selfish Buddhists that are only interested in their own liberation and not in the liberation of all beings. And I think that one of the... Uh, 
overstatements in simplification of the difference between the paths uh, of, uh, of Buddhist understanding over the years um, is that particular misunderstanding. Um, I don't think it's possible to be awake and selfish. It just doesn't happen. That the other part of wisdom is compassion. I have a very simple dharma. What I trust is that if we saw really clearly, we would behave impeccably. And we would behave impeccably and unselfishly on behalf of others. And we would do it because we saw clearly the truth of suffering and the truth of impermanence and the truth of non-separateness. We would see on some fundamental level that what we perceive as something permanent inside of us and separating us from all beings is, is, uh, is an illusion created by our storytelling mind. So what we are doing here in the most profound way is we are trying to see clearly those truths of life experience that will lead us to really see and experience our lives from a perspective that has transformed our heart. It's nothing less than everything, really. There are two parts to it. As we practice here, we are practicing developing that balance of heart and mind that allows us to see clearly. All of the instructions that we give so far, rest in the moment, relax in this breath, be here now, take this step, just this step, taste this food, hear that sound, is so that we can be here and rest and be awake. Once we are awake, the second part of the practice is to use that faculty of investigation, of seeing clearly, to not only know what is happening, but what's true about what's happening. That it's impermanent, that it's coming and going, that it's actually empty of anything substantial. That to cling and to hold on to any experience creates suffering. To let go is freedom. We see it in every aspect of our lives and in every moment of our activity because it is a fundamental truth of how things are. We could do it just with watching the breath, just with walking. We have the simplest of lifestyles here. We have really pared down the life to do only what's necessary to stay alive. This is what human beings do. They wake, they sleep, they move, they stay still, they eat, they bathe, they, uh, what is called in the text, uh, respond to the call of nature. Uh, that's all we do here. 
and that's all we need to do. Actually, it's, it's leveling the playing field, actually, so that we have a better chance of seeing clearly. I had an experience last year that I've thought about a lot, about what is it that allows us to see clearly and then come to have, what practices do we need to allow us to see clearly what's true about the, get it, about how clinging and struggling makes suffering and how some people seem free of it. I was in uh, New York City and I grew up there. I live on the West Coast now and I'm not so often in New York. I was staying in Manhattan with my husband and I said, let's go to Brooklyn. We were married in Brooklyn and we lived for a year after that in uh, the upstairs of a duplex in Borough Park. So maybe some of you know Borough Park. And uh, I said, let's just go. It's been 40 years since I was there. But So we went. We took the subway. We went to Brooklyn. It was, when I lived there, um, a neighborhood of Jewish people. It still is. And uh, in fact, it's become a neighborhood of um, uh, more Hasidim, so that uh, Hasidim are people who have um, often a dedication, a devotion to a particular Rebbe. Uh, their um, praxis is quite traditional. So some people dress in a, um, uh, their dress is very modest. I dressed very modestly because I knew that about Borough Park. And uh, I rang the bell of the upstairs apartment in the building that I used to live in and a voice out of the little speakerphone said hello and I said uh, I used to live here 40 years ago and the voice said do you want to come up (laughs) and I said yes and she said good and rang the bell and that should have been a clue I came up and my husband as well and we spent quite a long time visiting who lives there now who's lived there for most of the 40 years since I haven't lived there. And is a little bit older than I, about five years older than I am. And um, I could tell by the way that she was dressed, I could tell by cues in her kitchen that she herself is very traditional in her observance. I'm I'm quite comfortable with that. We sat and we talked and... uh, She said she'd been widowed this year. Her husband had died just a few months before. She showed me his picture on the wall. And I said, uh, since she's not that old, I said, was he sick a long time? And she said, no, not very long. She said, I actually think that his illness, um, had it been diagnosed earlier, he really didn't need to die. But I think the doctors weren't so careful with him. But it happened. And... uh, I feel really sad, she said, but I talk to him a lot, so I feel that he's with me. Would you like to sit down and I'll make you some tea? The whole of the two hours were discussions in which the, the recurrent theme was, this is a difficulty, but that's how things are. I uh, asked her about 
who lived downstairs uh, when I had left. And she said, oh, yeah, they lived here for 25 years. Their children grew up with my children. Uh, they, you probably remember, were not so observant, in fact, not observant at all. But she said, they were wonderful people. We got along very well. My children played with their children. She said, you know, everybody's different. So, and would you like some more tea? I looked at the pictures on the wall of uh, her children, now grown, and I could tell by cues in the pictures that they all had different levels of traditional observance. You can tell by styles of dress and numbers of children. And she told me about all of her children, and she said, they're all different. She said, but you know, everybody's different. <laughs> That's the way it is. And after a while, I said, you know, I noticed that you have a little bit of an accent. Um, you weren't born in this country. She said, no, I was born in Czechoslovakia. I said, then you came in 39. You came before the war. She said, no, we didn't get out before the war. She said, I was in the camps, my sister and I. And she said, my mother died in the camps. But, uh, but my father, he survived. And uh, when we were liberated, she said, my sister was so sick with typhus that she couldn't stand. I had to carry her. She said, but there were Americans there, and they liberated us, and they were very kind. And my father came to this country, and he lived a long time, and my sister lives not far from here. And she had a family, and she married, and she had children, and now she has grandchildren. Want some more tea? I really, I, 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 I'll leave you out even the rest of the pieces. That was all of our discussion. I kept looking at her and thinking, this woman has had an amazing capacity to say, there are very difficult things in life. You see what happens. You can struggle or not struggle. She had a big box of her uh, on the table, on the dining room in front of her, uh, of uh, vitamins and herbs, which I thought was sort of new age, and I didn't exactly expect to find in that community. She said, I asked her about it. She said, these are my herbs. I send away in magazines for them. She said, you know, it's a new age. You have to keep up. You have to learn how things are. <laughs> After I left, I was just tremendously moved by her. My husband said, you didn't mention to her what you teach. I said, I think she knows it already. <laughs> I told my friend Sheila about it later, and I said, Sheila, how come we are all practicing so much and some people seem to do it without a practice? <laughs> and she said, she has a practice. And I, I wondered for a minute because I didn't think that she meant it was the traditional nature of her lifestyle that was the practice. And she said, she has a practice of suffering. And then I thought about it, and I thought Sheila was right. And then I thought, I, I don't think so. I think she has a practice of freedom, and she has the insight of suffering that's given it to her. I think it's different. Not everybody holds that vision of the possibility of the end of suffering 
through wise accommodation of the truth, which is another way of saying what Rose did. Not everybody has the ability to do that. There's a tremendous pain of not being able to do that. I'll tell you a personal story about that happened to me on that very same day, but it happens for everybody. It happens for many people. Many of my friends can tell me a similar story. That very same day, my husband and I took the train from Brooklyn up to Queens because um, I had decided to go to the cemetery. Um, and I had not been to the cemetery where my mother was buried for 40 years. And um, I wanted to go, so we went. And we needed to go, uh, it's a very long and arduous trip, but when you get there, you stop in at the front office of the cemetery, and they look up for you the general neighborhood of where that grave that you're looking for might be. Uh, the, the custom in those days were for um, um, groups of immigrant societies who had come from Europe to buy a piece of a Jewish cemetery so that within that cemetery there were the people from Kiev and the people from Ladensk and the people from Pinsk. And so you kind of got buried with your people from your community. And I knew the name of uh, my, and my mother I knew was buried with my father's parents' community because that's what happened. And I guess when these folks bought these plots of land in Queens at the late 1800s, they didn't anticipate the children of their children and their children. And so they got crowded. So the graves are actually one right next to the other. So you need actually to be stepping on the graves and pushing between them. And they can tell you that they can look up in their computer and say, yes, that grave is somewhere in the neighborhood of there and tell you where. And then you go and look. And I went and found my mother's grave and my father's father and my father's mother right near her. And in order to get to her grave, I had to step over so many. We were looking back and forth and going up and down rows. And the day was passing. And finally, I said in desperation to my husband, look, any of these people could have been my mother. Let's just... It's a very important realization. There's, a, there's a, 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 a teaching in Buddhism that we have all been each other's mother at some time. And I really had that sense. I mean, I didn't need to find that particular stone with that particular name. But by that part time, he was looking. So we found the stones and said the prayers and were leaving. And then I thought, well, as long as I've done that side of my family and I'm all the way in Queens and I'm not there so much, went back into the office and I said, well, that society, my grandfather, that grandfather's society we checked, how about my other grandfather's society that I knew? And they said, yeah, that society has a plot here. My grandfather died in Florida. I knew he wasn't buried there. My grandmother, strangely, wasn't buried there. My mother has a younger sister who's coming on 80 now. When I was a almost grown up, sometime in my teenage, I, I had remembered that my mother had told me once that there had been a third sister between my mother and my Aunt Miriam. 
and that that sister had died when she was six years old. I had that piece of knowledge in my memory. No one had ever spoken of it. It could have been a dream. I wasn't sure it had happened. My grandfather, when he was very old, I asked him, I said, you know, I heard from my mother that actually you had three daughters, not two. And he said, no, no, that wasn't true. They were just two. And then after he died, and some many years went by, I asked my aunt, and I said, you know, I have this feeling. My mother said, I think she said, that there was another child. She said, no, no other child. But I was there in the cemetery, and there was that, that society, and they had a plot up there. And I said, okay, this is the last name, and I said the last name, and they looked it up, and they said, oh yeah, we have people with that name in that plot. And I said, I'm looking for a child's grave, maybe six years old. And they said, what do you, what's her first name? They said, yeah, we have some children here. What's her first name? And I said, I don't know. Then I said, I think her name was Sylvia. And they said, yes, there's one. And she was six years old, and she died on May 17, 1920. And they said, you might not be able to find the grave because they use, usually use limestone for children's graves and they don't hold up and you won't be able to read the writing. So we went all the way up to that other part of the cemetery and once again stepping over graves and lots of children's graves unnamed and I was getting ready to give up again because there were all these unnamed graves. And I said, look, I can't find anything here. And Seymour said, well, look over there. There's a whole other bunch of graves. Let's just try over there as well. And we went, and there were more limestone graves. And then there was a quite large marble, so that it was in good shape, grave, with the grave of my Aunt Sylvia, uh, with her birthday and her death day. And I know that it's she, because her Hebrew name Cyril Batfischel is right there, and I, I know who my grandfather was. So. And uh, unusually for me, I'm generally not very emotional, I burst out crying, and I was so upset. But I was so upset because they'd been duplicitous, that they hadn't told me. I was really, I felt terrible about that. And later on, I talked to my aunt about it, and she said, I said, how could my grandfather have done that? I was so close to him. Why didn't he tell me? She said, he didn't remember. He wasn't, he did not lose his memory. His memory was intact his whole life. He died at 98 with good memory. She said he forgot that part. He just really forgot. I said, did you forget? Did you know anything about it? She said, my earliest memory was um, when I was about two years old and I was playing. I remember the room I was in. I remember the sun coming in the window. I remember playing on the floor. I looked up and I remember my mother crying. And I got frightened because she was crying and I started to cry. And she said, my mother said, don't cry, don't cry, and picked me up and I never saw her cry again. I tell you that whole story because I really want to say that it is so hard to open to the pain of loss in our life. I told you the story about she could do it. 
and my grandfather couldn't do it. It's very, very hard to open to the pain of life. When we open to the pain of our own lives, we begin really to be able to intuit the pain of everyone's life. And there's two possibilities when that happens. We can absolutely be overwhelmed, we can be staggered, we can be drowned in the pain of what we see. Or we can somehow, through grace, through wisdom, through grace and wisdom, have the balance to be able to hold that pain in a very wide heart and have it come out as compassion. When we walked out of that cemetery and come up from all these up and down hills of graves after graves after graves, and we came up to the gate to leave, you look back and you see hills and hills and hills of graves. And you realize that every one of those people is somebody that somebody cared about. Every one of those people and every one of those names is attached, was attached to somebody who other people cared about. And I looked at all of them and from the vantage point that I could see, there was cemetery this way and that way and that way and that way. And then suddenly it ended and there was a fence and then there was Queens out stretching beyond the cemetery in the distance. But I realized actually that the vision that the cemetery ended there isn't a true one, that the cemetery actually goes all around the world and that actually all of the world is paved actually with the bones of people that other people cared about and loved and had a name. In a hundred years, we'll all be a name that somebody maybe will remember. I have an experience here that you may have shared in my 20 years of being here. There's a uh, bathroom in the office. In the bathroom, there's a particularly artistic holder for toilet paper. It's not a uniform one that you see in public bathrooms all over the place. It's not made by a major manufacturing company. It's made by Frank L. Thayer. And it says so. Frank L. Thayer, domestic engineer. And it says it quite beautifully on quite a beautiful plate. And for the 20 years that I have been coming here or so to practice, that plate has been holding up the toilet paper roll in that bathroom. And each time I'm there, I think about who knew him. You know, he had a family, he had a mother and a father, someone gave him that name. Likely he had children. And not, it, all, it even says where he lived. It said Frank L. Thayer, Athol, Massachusetts. Each time I'm there, I think about who knew him. 
You know, he had a family, he had a mother and a father, someone gave him that name. Likely he had children. And not, it, it even says where he lived, it said Frank L. Thayer, Athol, Massachusetts. And you think about a whole life that went through him. That each of us has a story and a life and people to whom we are connected who care about us, to whom our life and our death is significant. When we see really how fragile everything is, we become much kinder. There's a line in the Dhammapada that says, whoever recognizes death ceases to be contentious. When we see that just by the truth of temporality, nothing lasts. It's not a mistake, death. I mean, it happens sooner or later, but it's not a mistake. When we see that, we become very much more protective of each other. We take care of each other. I think it fires up our resolve to act for social justice, to make this the best of all possible worlds, so that as long as we are here in this fragile human condition, we are not in more pain and more suffering than we need to be. That everything that we do extra in terms of the hurts that we inflict on each other, the injustices that we do on each other that we need not do, is extra. Life alone is painful enough just because of the nature of inevitable loss. There's a line that the Buddha said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And I remember feeling often, especially when I was teaching young people in a college class about Buddhism, I would hesitate to use that line because actually I thought maybe they would misunderstand and make it make Buddhism look gloomy, and I didn't want them to think Buddhism looked gloomy. I don't think it's gloomy. I think it's absolutely the key to joy when we see clearly. But it's true, everything that is dear to us causes pain, and things are dear to us. Our kin are dear to us, our friends are dear to us. When we recognize how fragile, how impermanent, and how dear life is to us. We recognize the fleeting nature of our lives and everyone else's lives. We respond to pain with compassion. We respond to good fortune with sympathetic joy. We respond in general with friendliness. You know, there are words that seem trite sometimes, like I thought about talking about the word transformation. But it's, it's, it's one of those words that's gotten to be used so much that sometimes I, I hesitate because... Um, just, just, I hesitate. But in fact, we are hoping to transform ourselves. I think we have two possibilities, like the geese flying south, that we have nervous systems that are egocentrically wired. We impulsively, um, instinctively 
take care of ourselves. We jump out of the way of careening cars. It's good that we have self-serving nervous systems because it keeps us alive. keeps us alive. It, it recreates the species. We have instincts. We have impulses, and we can skillfully and wholesomely use them and keep ourselves well and keep each other well. So we have the part of us that's devoted to ourself. And we have the possibility of, at the other end of the spectrum, this is the end of us that's in a body. And then there's the part of us that really has the possibility of seeing through the natural self-serving instinctive response of the body and responding with the not self-serving, really compassionate response of a wise person. And I think we operate always somewhere in between those two ends of the continuum. And it's fine that we do that. I like to think that we're facing in the direction of that side that knows the joy of seeing clearly, that knows absolutely the joy of living in wisdom and in compassion. So that like the geese, we are facing in that direction and sometimes we turn in the other direction, but then we turn back in the direction that we're going. It's the happiest direction to fly in. I think I didn't want to use the word transformation because it gets used in terms of come and do this weekend and be transformed. And I think transformation is a lifetime of work. Uh, Jacob Needleman said the way you could tell if a spiritual practice was a valid one was that it would require work. It's not easy to do this. Carol said last night, we're, we're really changing habits, making new habits. It's not so easy. So we talk about the techniques of this practice are being our techniques that allow us to see clearly, increasingly to see clearly, so that the habits of our heart and mind get changed. And then we can talk about what are the techniques and what have we been doing here and how do sitting here in this way and walking here in this way and being here together in this way mitigate in the direction of that clear seeing. We can go, we can, I think, do it really in, in two parts again. Just as on the very first day of practice in the morning, you may remember I said what we're trying to do, at least for a day or two, is to really focus on the breath so that we can relax and settle in and be present here that we can rest with ease in this present moment. The second part of practice is once we are resting with ease, to look and watch and see clearly what is true. I remember after many years of practice where I really couldn't rest comfortably and didn't rest easily and couldn't settle down, I finally could. And I could finally really concentrate. I was so happy. 
I could sit, I could be with my breath, I was filled with warm, nice feelings, I could sit for long periods of time. I was thrilled. I went to see Joseph, who was my teacher at the time, and I told him, and I thought he'd be thrilled, and I, I, I'm sure he was pleased. And what he said was, that's very good, Sylvia. Now you got here. Now that's half. Once you got here, you have to look around. You didn't just get here to be here. You got here to notice what's true. Now you start to notice. What we are doing is we are attempting to rest with ease in this moment, each moment, so that we can then bring to it that factor of wise investigation that says, what do I see in this moment? What's arising? What's passing away? Look how it changes. Every moment changes. There was a thought that's gone. What was it? It was nothing. It was a bubble. It was empty. There is everything to be seen in every moment. What we are here is to see the nature of the mind, the nature of the mind-body connection, and see how desire arises, how it clouds the mind, how it conditions the next moment of planning, how aversion arises, how the body responds to aversion. It's not just to know what's happening, but what's happening, and then what happens, and then what happens, and then what does that condition? Because then we begin to be able to see this is an unwholesome pattern. This does not tend in the direction of clarity. We come back like the geese and say, okay, now I pay more attention. I see the same pattern happening again and again and again. So as we continue this practice of um, resting in the moment and wise investigation, I'll, uh, I'd like to add uh, to uh, uh, the various other suggestions that we've been giving, given, giving, uh, what I like to think of as Joseph's remark. Then I'll tell you Sharon's remark. These are two remarks that uh, changed my life, certainly changed my practice life. Joseph's remark is the generic answer to every practice question you might possibly have about um, should I do this or that? Should I sit up later or not sit up later? Should I get up earlier or not? Should I sit in a chair or on the zafu? Should I eat more or less? Should I give up caffeine or not? Should I walk inside or outside? Should I do metta or not? Should I? This is the generic answer. And I got the generic answer in response to this question some time ago. I was practicing here in this very place. Uh, I actually have my very spot in the back of the room. I go to visit it every once in a while. Um, I was practicing here, and my practice was, I felt in a good shape. was in a good shape. I was comfortable, I was happy, I was alert. I was really so excited about really being able to see what's true. I felt very confident about my practice. And I had a whole organized day. I got up at a certain time, I ate just the right amounts not to be sleepy. I went to sleep at a certain time. I get up very early, in the, quite early, because that's my habit. And so I start to sit in the hall when there's no one here. I had my whole day quite organized, and I was keeping it on that very um, clearly thought out, organized plan, 
in order to preserve what I thought was a mind balance that I somehow either thought I could preserve or needed to preserve. Both ideas are silly, actually. The mind is always balanced. It's the attention that doesn't stay with it. And there's nothing you can hold on to anyway. But anyway, operating with that delusion, uh, it was with some dismay that I read a sign on the bulletin board outside that said, tomorrow's Oxfam day. And uh, if you... Uh, choose to fast tomorrow, uh, IMS will d donate $10 in your name, which is, or on behalf of you, which is what it costs to feed you every day, to Oxfam. And if you don't want to fast, you can just sign up over here or make a check. You don't have to even put your name. Make a check so we'll know for how many people we should cook. Fasting for me is not a problem. I could fast and uh, certainly I wanted to support Oxfam, but I had this idea that my practice depended on that I should continue to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and have my cup of coffee at this that time, and then sit, and then this, and then that, and eat that amount of food at this time. So when I saw Joseph for my interview, I told him my whole proliferated mind confusion of should I do X or Y or this or that, and I finished my whole story, and he said, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. That is the generic answer to whatever problem you have. It has profound implications way beyond should I stand or sit or up or down. Do whatever you need to stay balanced. We cannot see clearly or act clearly unless we're balanced in the largest sense in the life. So Sharon's remark... Uh, Sharon's remark was a salutation. It has to do with the mood that you bring to practice. Uh, when I was working with Sharon as my teacher, I would leave an interview, and as this was my custom, I would have my hand on the doorknob, and I would say, thank you very much, and she would say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I'd say, thank you very much, and I'd leave. And uh, it was a long time, before I realized that be happy was not a salutation. It was an instruction. <laughs> and it is an instruction. It's an instruction that means be content in this moment. It's not much different from do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. Bring a quality of contented, confident, joy if you can to this moment, or at least contented confidence to this moment. What it serves, Sharon's remark for me, is it serves as a mindfulness bell in the following way. If I'm practicing and I'm going through the day and something comes up, something comes up. If we took a show of hands here, something would have come up for everybody today. Say, how many people have something come up? Everything came up for everybody. Something comes up, and the mind is captivated by it. The attention grabs it, and then carries it around, and shakes it up, and complicates the mind with it. And the mind gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And all of a sudden, I would, in such a moment, I would have the thought, I'm not happy. And then into my consciousness would arise the voice of my teacher saying, remember, Sylvia, be happy. I think, ah, 
All I have to do at this moment is take the next breath absolutely clearly, absolutely fully, with complete attention. Or all I need to do is to put this foot down as I walk with complete attention. And then I am happy. As you do that, everything else disappears. The mind is free and relaxed and balanced and contented and sometimes joyful. So I would like to add to Joseph's remark and Sharon's remark, Sylvia's remark. (laughs) Sylvia has many remarks, but this is the remark I'd like to make. My remark for tonight would be practice continuously. Practice continuously. It took me a very long time to catch on to that as well, that we do not have sitting periods and walking periods and lunchtime, well, on a certain level, on the chart it says sitting and then walking and then eating and then get up and all of that, as if those are separate parts of our practice. Those are only different positions of practice and they are different activities during which time we practice. But we are here to practice continuously, paying attention to what's happening and to what's true about what's happening, that it's arising and passing away moment to moment, that it's just coming of its own. No one decides to have a mood come or go, just does. No one decides to have a thought. They come of their own self, they leave, that holding on causes suffering. We get to see that if we watch in every moment, feel in every moment, know in every moment what is true, what is happening, and what's true about what's happening, which is really what we're doing here. One of the techniques for practicing continuously, which I found very helpful, is a technique of mental noting. It took me many years to get to do it seriously because it seemed to me so bizarre to be telling myself what I was doing or what was happening while it was happening. I think to myself, I know I'm lifting my foot. What do I have to say lifting about? I know I'm moving. I know I'm reaching my hand out for the doorknob. Why should I say lifting or reaching? I felt idiotic about it, actually. And then at one point, I finally decided, I'll do it. I I tell you this because I'd like for you to do it. Mental noting is not mindfulness. Mental noting is mental noting. Just reminders, it's markers. But what it does, what it did for me, was keep my attention focused in what was happening, and then suddenly, instead of commenting on the experience, there was nothing but experience and the knowing of it. And it's quite different to be saying lifting, reaching, touching, and to know lifting, reaching, touching. It's quite thrilling. As a matter of fact, it's amazingly thrilling. It's an amazing experience to be filled with the joy and delight and rapture because you're touching something and you know it. You think to yourself, this is a weird thing to get excited about. (laughs) 
But actually, mindfulness is thrilling. It's actually thrilling. So I'd like to remind you to do the mental noting. I'd like you to, to give you as another incentive for practice or hint for practice to keep reminding yourself about the intention. You, we're a hundred people here. People came with in different places in their lives and different hopes for the practice. All of your hopes were fine hopes. Whatever they were, may they come to pass. And to know as well that in the widest, broadest sense, we are practicing for nothing less than complete understanding and total liberation. It's thrilling to think about that. I have a friend who uh, told me that his daughter, when she was young, came, uh, got up one morning and came into his bedroom and said, um, Daddy, you know when you get up in the morning and you're up? And he said, yes. And she said, well, once you're up, can you get more up than up? <laughs> so the thing is, you can. You can wake more up from up. That what we did in the morning. You can wake more up than up. And then the last thing I want to say is I think there's a tremendous element of um, the cultivation of faith and confidence in yourself and in this practice. Coming together as a group, even when my own uh, confidence flags, and I, I remember having all kinds of crises of doubt, but everybody else was so steadfast. So as you practice steadfastly, you should know that your steadfastness is holding up the person next to you. Really. With I loved it when Sharon told that story about Upandita saying, do you have confidence? And she said, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll do it well. Maybe I won't do it well. And he said, why don't you have a lot of confidence in yourself? Why not? I want you to know that I have sat down on my zapu in this very room on any number of times and said to myself, I'm not getting up from the zapu until I'm enlightened. <laughs> it, clearly it hasn't happened, but... But when I do it, I'm not fooling around. I mean, the Buddha did that when he sat down under the Bodhi tree. And what I am saying to myself when I say that is, I know I take refuge in the fact that it is possible for human beings to wake up, more up than up. It's possible to wake up. It is possible to see with absolute clear vision and to express that clear vision in compassionate action in the world. And it's wonderful to sit down and say, I'm not standing up until I'm free. So it occurred to me that we are now a little bit into this retreat, but we have seven days left. So you might want to know that at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the end of the Sutta in which the Buddha teaches the foundations of mindfulness, he says, Monks, one who practices in the four establishments of mindfulness for seven years, can expect one of two fruits, the highest understanding in this very life or in the next life. 
let alone seven years, monks, whoever practices the four establishments of mindfulness in six, five, four, three, two years, one year, or even one month, can also expect those two fruits, either the highest understanding in this very life, or at least in the next. Let alone a month, monks, whoever practices the four establishments of mindfulness one week can also expect one of those two fruits, either the highest understandings in this very life or in the very next. The monks were delighted to hear the teaching of the Buddha. They took it to heart and they put it into practice. So may we, and may we practice with the intention to do it in this very life. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you. This talk was given by Silvio Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on 2-1598. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.